So, nice to see everybody again. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been able to meet. Um, just pray that everyone's keeping keeping well, keeping smart and savvy, and also, as always, growing nearer and closer to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, it's been a very fruitful study going through the book of Exodus. We're now in Exodus 36, and I'm just going to give a slight background and a recap so that we can just become, you know, come back on par with what we were doing. But tonight's study is going to be called Bezalel, Jesus, and Giving to the Building of the Tabernacle Project. And so, we had the Sabbath regulations that Dave dealt with last time, a couple of weeks back. The various offerings of the tabernacle, the articles for the tabernacle, and then we saw that the artisans, various artisans, in other words, skilled people were called by God for this project of building the tabernacle that was to be in the desert, in the wilderness with Israel. So what I'm going to do is just read the last five verses of Exodus 35, and then we'll take it from there. So verse 30 to 35, And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting in carving wood, well, jewels for setting in carving wood, comma, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. And he has put in his heart the ability to teach in him, and Aholiab the son of Ahishamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple and scarlet thread and fine linen and of the weaver, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. So the reason why I'm giving this background is because tonight is going to be about Bezalel, about Ahuliav and about these articles or these items and how Israel actually came to give for this project. So I'm assuming everyone is in and around Exodus 35 and 36. So Exodus 36, we're going to deal with verses 1 to 3 as a start. And Bezalel and Aholiav and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiav and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. So as you can see, your, your first verse, verse 1, you're looking at Aholiav, and I'm going to leave Bezalel for a little bit later. Aholiav means, his name means father's tent. Which I found is very interesting seeing as though he's going to be second in charge to Bezalel in building the Father's tent. This tabernacle that is in the wilderness. Note also that there are skilled artisans or people. And those were in those who the Lord put wisdom and understanding. Now, what you look at in the Hebrew, it said those who were wise in heart. Those who were wise in heart or wise of heart. So... What we'll see is a very fine tension between God's sovereignty and man's will. And I'll explain that in a second. But the Lord has put wisdom and understanding in these men and in these artisans 
to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary. And similarly for you and I, when we go about our Christian walks, our Christian lives, that is the reason why we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us, because He is the one who gifts us, who gives us wisdom and understanding, so that we may walk in all manner of work. And our work, as obviously as the church, as the body of Christ, is, is dox, doxological, it's to praise God, it's to worship God, but also it's to do the work of Him who calls us. In other words, evangelism, discipleship, um, teaching, preaching, whatever the case may be, discipling, if I haven't said that, to walk very closely with those the Lord calls us to walk with. And notice that it says there that they shall do all that the Lord commanded. In verse 2, Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord put wisdom. Now notice we have wisdom, we have understanding, and we later on will see that there is knowledge. Now, when we look at the book of Proverbs, remember we did the book of Proverbs as a group together before the book of Exodus. And in my own personal Bible study, I've also come to the realization that there's four main pillars that the book of wisdom is sort of molded and shaped on. And that is wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and discernment. So I'll say those again. Wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and discernment. And if we understand those four principles or those four um, pillars, I firmly do believe when it comes to Bible study, to, to private devotion, uh, to prayer, to discipleship, to teaching and preaching, whatever we may need in the body of Christ, those are really, really important. And so if you look at James, the half-brother of Jesus, what he says on wisdom, he says in James 1, verse 5 to 6, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And I was chatting to Kelly this morning, and just saying to her, when we come to the Lord And we ask Him for wisdom when we're lacking wisdom. Remember that that individual in Christ has had to go to a stage where he does not rely on his own wisdom anymore. In other words, he's become humble. He's become uh, submissive before God. He knows Jesus is his Lord. And therefore, he doesn't rely on his own wisdom. But he he knows that he lacks the wisdom of God. And that's why we go and ask God liberally. I mean, we ask God so that He liberally may give without reproach. And I found that very interesting. Let him ask in faith, verse 6, with no doubting. This is still James chapter 1, verse 6. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So obviously when we come to the Lord, we don't um, hesitate. Um, we, have to be, we have to have faith. right? Lord, please give me wisdom. I need your wisdom. I need to be about your business. I want to glorify your name. I want to praise your name. And this is what we can see in the hearts of Bezalel and Aholiav as well, and all those artisans. They wanted to do the work of the Father. And so the Father gave them the gift of wisdom, the gift of understanding, the gift of um, building and artisanship, which is really, really amazing. So Proverbs, when you look at Proverbs verse four, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, David says to Well, Solomon recalls what David, his father, was saying to him. And David said to him, in no uncertain terms, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget, nor turn away from the words of my mouth. And Solomon recalls this this, uh, command almost that his dad gave him. And what a scholar by the name of Warren Weasby says, he says, get wisdom suggests to buy wisdom. 
Because the Hebrew word carries the idea of a commercial transaction. There's a price to pay if you want to know God's truth and obey it. I thought that was really, really interesting. Verse 3 in 36, we then look at, they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him free will offerings. Right? So let's quickly look at what free will offerings are. I drew this off of God questions. It's just easier to um, just sort of summarize it. I took some of the stuff out just to condense it a bit. So what is a free will offering? The free will offering was a sacrifice regulated by God's standards in the Mosaic law. But it was completely voluntary. So a free will offering is a voluntary offering according to Leviticus 23 and verse 38. In the law, the free will offering was to be of a male bull, sheep or goat with no physical deformities or blemishes. And it was not to have been purchased from a foreigner. Right? So the bull, the goat, the sheep had to be of the flock of Israel. The offering was to include flour mixed with oil and wine. The amounts varied on whether the sacrifice was a lamb, bull or a ram. And that's in Numbers 15. As with all sacrifices, the free will offering was to be made in a place of God's choosing, not in an area formerly used by other religions or at home. So it's very, very specific. Free will offerings in Old Testament um, Times were very specific, not in pagan places and not in your own home. The Lord would have given you a destination to make a free will offering. Although it was appropriate to give the sacrifice during formal feast days, it could be given at any time, according to Deuteronomy 16.10. Unlike other offerings governed by stricter rules, the priest could eat the free will offering on the day it was sacrificed or the day after. Right, so whether it was the sacrifice of an animal or donated supplies for a place of worship, the free will offering was to be given freely as the Lord moved the Israelites' hearts. It was not to be used to gain prestige, according to Amos 4.5, or because of guilt, inducement, or force. Today, right, for us Christians, the free will offering is the only offering we have. We rely on the sacrifice of Jesus and not the sacrifice of animals for our atonement. All the money, time and resources we give are freely, are to be freely given rather as the Spirit leads. For many it might be difficult discerning and being obedient to when the Spirit leads. However, God has given us everything we have. If He moves our hearts, then we should cheerfully give. It's all for the glory of Jesus Christ. Right? So... That's where we look at what a free will offering is. Today we give out a free will. I'm going to cover that a little bit later on in the teaching. But I thought it very fitting to understand and try and look at who this man Betzalel was. Um, I find it fascinating that he's in the book of Exodus and he's mentioned a few other times. But firstly we notice that he, from verse, from about chapter 25 I think it is, he's mentioned as a gifted person. Interestingly enough he's from the tribe of Judah. And he's endowed with a lot of wisdom. And Bezalel means in the shadow or in the protection of God. So this man that was chosen, remember in the Hebrew times, your name was very important because it had not everyone's names, but a lot of the biblical names, there was a lot of importance. So for example, Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua. And Yeshua in the Old, Old Testament means the, the God who saves, right? Salvation by God. So Yeshua is the one who saves. And that's why Jesus' name was Yeshua. And also, 
Another thing to note is that Bezalel was the son of Uri and grandson of Hur, a skilled Judasine artisan, a Judah, Judahite rather, artisan in all works of metal, wood and stone, and one of the architects of the tabernacle. So this is talking about Bezalel. What I want us to note is fascinating parallels with Jesus, Solomon and David. So I did a bit of research to try and get my ideas and see if anyone could really help me put these together. So I have taken an article, I've adapted it to suit the teaching, I've taken some things out and added some of my own things. But let's look at it quickly. So this is just regarding Bezalel, I think this is really fascinating. One of the main characters in Exodus is a man whose name only appears three other times in the whole Bible. And then only in genealogies, in Chronicles and Ezra. His name is Bezalel, and he plays an enormous role in the construction of the tabernacle. Exodus 31, 1-5 introduces him by saying, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works. To work in gold, silver, bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. Right, so though Moses is given the vision of the tabernacle in Exodus 25:40, and the people are called to furnish the materials in Exodus 25:1-8 and Exodus 35:4-9, it is the spirit-endowed skill possessed by Bezalel that made it possible for the tabernacle to be constructed. This is re-emphasized in Exodus 35, but Exodus 38, 22 must be highlighted. So look what it says in Exodus 38. It says in verse 22, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. Now it is obvious why Bezalel is mentioned in Exodus. He is the chief foreman on the tabernacle project. He is given skill and wisdom of the Spirit to accomplish the task. However, the more amazing point is this. Why is it important that Bezalel's family lineage be mentioned? Of course, it is nice to know a little background on him, but our question should be, is that it? Is that the only reason? And I think there is something more going on, something what you might call prophetic typology. Right? So we have to be sharp here. Prophetic typology. So what is typology? Typology in Christian theology, theology and biblical exegesis, which I'll explain now, is a doctrine or theory concerning the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. Right? So typology is a doctrine or theory concerning the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. Biblical exegesis, on the other hand, is a critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially of Scripture. Right? So solid Bible teachers... And they will go line for line, verse upon verse, precept upon precept, and they will let the Bible, by the Holy Spirit, explain to them what the Bible must say. That is a good, solid exegesis. In other words, it's a critical explanation and interpretation of a text. The opposite of that is eisegesis. In other words, the preacher or the teacher reads into the text and he makes it and manipulates it so that he can have it according to his own will. In other words, an eisegetical teacher is not a good biblical teacher. We have to let the text explain to us what the Holy Spirit is saying, what the Lord Jesus is saying to us, in order for us to relay it again to other people. 
Right, so typology, what is a type? You've got a type, an ectype, and an archetype. Right, so I trust everyone is sharp tonight. I know you're all ready. So a type resembles or has the characteristics of a specific thing or a specified thing. An ectype is a copy from an original, an imitation or a reproduction, right? Such as an impression of a seal. And an archetype is a very typical example of a certain person or thing. So don't worry about it. If you're panicking, relax, no worries. It will sort itself out now in the following paragraphs. So can you think of anyone else from the tribe of Judah who obeyed God's law to build a tabernacle? How about the son of David, Solomon? In the history of Israel, it is recorded that God gave David a vision of the temple and that David passed on this architectural plan to Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28. Moreover, like Bezalel, Yahweh gave Solomon unsurpassed wisdom in order to construct the first temple. You can go read more on that in 1 Kings chapter 3 and 10 and forward. And again, James 1.5 talking about wisdom and asking the Lord for wisdom. So in a very real way, Solomon with his spirit-endowed wisdom was a greater Bezalel. So Bezalel was the type, Solomon the ectype. Or to say it another way, a greater installment of the temple builder par excellence was still to come. In the New Testament we find that the temple building typology of Bezalel and Solomon is picked up and completed in Jesus Christ. Right, so this is where it gets fascinating. Jesus, who is known as the son of David in Matthew 1.1, which reads the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Jesus was a son of Judah. In other words, he came from the tribe of Judah. You'll see the genealogy in Matthew 1 again. Is the one who perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law of Moses, Matthew 5.17. Moreover, as Matthew describes something greater than Solomon is here, Moreover, let me just read that again in its tense. Moreover, as Matthew describes, something greater than Solomon is here. And that's in Matthew 12, 42. Then in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus himself says that he is building a church. One that will never be destroyed by death, sin or Satan. He alludes to the rock, right, which could conjure up pictures of the temple mount. And the Lord Jesus says that he is going to build and establish his temple, his church, on Peter's confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thus, in his death, Jesus becomes the cornerstone of a new temple. Indeed, Paul uses temple imagery to describe what Jesus is doing by the Spirit. Right, so just to recap, we've got Bezalel who builds the tabernacle, Solomon who builds the temple, and you've got Jesus who is the builder of the ultimate temple, which is a temple possessed by the Holy Spirit. So look what is... Look what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Right, so the confirmation of the Bezalel, Solomon, Jesus typological structure finds further support in Hebrews, where the author compares and contrasts Moses and Jesus. Right, so this is in Hebrews chapter 3. 
and says that our Christ is not simply a servant in the house, He is the builder of the house, in Hebrews 3.3. Accordingly, He deserves greater glory, more glory than Moses, and by extension Bezalel, who constructed a tent in the desert. More glory than Solomon, who constructed a superlative temple in Jerusalem. These typological dwellings were splendid in their own time and place, but are pale in comparison to what Christ is doing in His church through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to the gospel of the temple-building son of Judah. So what a vision that is. In Bezalel and later in Solomon, the Spirit of God is preparing the way for Christ to come and to build His church and to powerfully live in and through born-again, spirit-filled believers. The typology is not just a retrospective analogy between Jesus and Bezalel. Rather, set in history, God has set aside Bezalel as son of Judah, or as a son of Judah, to become a temple builder, so that when Christ comes into the world, right at His incarnation, at the first coming, we would see an entire history of spirit-filled men building a dwelling place for God with His people until the age or the dispensation of grace has been fulfilled. In other words, until the last Gentile comes in, in Romans 11, 25-27. Once again we see in Exodus the way Christ is foreshadowed. He is the substance from which Bezalel is the historical shadow. It is a glorious reminder that all scripture points us to Jesus, and that on every page of God's inspired text, we see glimpses of our Savior from the tribe of Judah, the eternal Son of God, duly now reflected in the saints who are shaped and sanctified by the Spirit of Christ. And remember Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in us is the hope of glory. So, just to look at who Bezalel was and the magnificence that is in Christ, the Old Testament, in many instances, as we can see, has pictures or shadows or types, and, and then it shows us in the New Testament what Christ or the Apostles or the New Testament church fulfilled. And I think that's absolutely fascinating why Bezalel is actually so important. And I'd just like to point out, just as Bezalel was given wisdom and understanding and knowledge, so too the Christ follower must seek wisdom, understanding and knowledge. And more so discernment too, to discern between spirits as it talks about in the New Testament. We need wisdom and understanding for this walk, brothers and sisters. James 1.5 again, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So when you're into your Bible study in the morning, Heavenly Father, please give me wisdom. Give me wisdom in your word. Give me wisdom to walk this daily life with you, because why would you not want wisdom? If, we, if, if Solomon required and wanted wisdom, the first thing that he asked, he didn't ask for anything else than an, an immense amount of wisdom. Why not us too? So remember those four pillars that we can build our foundation on. Obviously our foundation is Christ, as the Bible says, but we've got wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and discernment. Okay, so let's move along. Exodus 36, verses 4 to 7. So now we look at the reward of giving. So verse 4, Then all craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had 
was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, too much. Right, so now we look at this amazing part in this tabernacle project, is that the Lord asked the people to bring things, and they brought more than they had to bring. And the cross-reference we can look at here is Exodus 35, 1 to 4. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. And this is what the Lord required. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, ram skins dyed, badger skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. What I'd like to see is that if you look at Israel and their giving, we should also often examine our hearts when it comes to giving for the Lord's work. So in Christianity, as you can see, we have what is known as free will offerings at Calvary Chapel, obviously, and Pastor Fabio and Dave can back me up. We don't teach anything on giving unless the text actually explicitly talks about it. And here I think the text does talk about how Israel gave with a willful heart and a willing heart to this project. And Proverbs 21:26 talks about a willing heart, a giving heart. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, like full chapters, talk about this. And what we can learn from the Israelites here is that they were actually a very giving people. So remember when Israel comes out of Egypt, they are now, remember on Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, and the, the law is given, the commandments are given. And while Moses is up there 40 days later, the, or 50 days later, the, the golden calf episode happens. And what happens is Moses is still up there, he's taking quite a while, and Israel then all of a sudden they panic. Remember Aaron makes them make a golden calf. And so what happened is, remember the Bible there says that they brought the gold. They brought all these things so this gold can be fashioned or this, this gold can be made into this calf. And I was thinking earlier, I wonder if the Lord didn't test them in this as well to see if they would give just as much as what they freely gave to making an idol. And they gave so much that they actually were told to stop giving, as we just read in our text. So I find that fascinating that Israel didn't stop in their giving. They were still very generous. And they knew that this temple project, this tabernacle project rather, had to go ahead. It was a dwelling place where God wanted to be and they, they had to follow the commands of the Lord. So note that they were told to stop giving. But the question is, how should we give? Looking at New Testament Christianity, you know, um, you have the the... The concept of the 10% which is taught throughout churches everywhere. And that is actually not a New Testament concept. A New Testament concept is a free will offering. So look at the following. How should we give? Firstly, we should give cheerfully. We should give cheerfully. So 2 Corinthians 9.7 Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. Secondly, we should give from a spirit of love. 1 Corinthians 13.3 And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So we give cheerfully. We give with a spirit of love. Number three, we should give in honoring to the Lord because He blesses us. In other words, we should give because the first fruits belong to Him. Proverbs 3.9, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. 
Number four, we should give without expecting anything in return. Matthew 6, 2. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. We should give fifthly when others ask for help. So Luke 6.30, give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Number six, we should give generously whenever we can. Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Number seven, everything belongs to God and we give out of thanksgiving to God. So what I'll do is I'll put these together at the end. 2 Corinthians 9, 10 and 11, now, many, or sorry, now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So remember, we don't give to get prosperity in return. That's a false teaching. We give, as you can see there, so that the fruits of your righteousness may be increased, so that we may um, grow nearer to the Lord, so that we may become more humble, so that we may be, be able to have a giving heart, um, a heart to see the gospel spread, a heart to see um, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorification of His name. Number eight, we find times of spiritual refreshing when we give generously. In other words, giving gives us peace. Proverbs 11.25, the generous soul will be made rich, right? Note there, the soul will be made rich, not the person. And he who waters will also be watered himself. In other words, whoever refreshes will be refreshed by that and others will be refreshed. But we can also see that number nine, the spirit in which we give is the spirit in which we will receive. Luke 6.38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom. For the same measure that you use will be measured back to you. And lastly, we want to give as New Testament Christians, because as born-again believers, because God takes care of all our needs. Philippians 4.19 And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Right, so why give? The whole thing, there's this whole argument in the church. Some people say we shouldn't give at all because it doesn't mention it in the New Testament. I think that's, um, that's not a thorough investigation of the context and the text. And some say that we must give 10% because the Bible teaches 10%. But we can see giving is directed by God and it shapes us and our hearts which result in fruitfulness for the gospel and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we give as Calvary for example because we have a shepherd, a pastor, an under-shepherd rather, who is put there by the Lord Jesus Christ. We give so that the, 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 we can meet together. We give for the missions of the church. We give whatever the Lord lays on your heart. I'm just trying to put some ideas in our heads just to understand why Israel gave so willingly. And at the end of the day, if we actually read the text properly and we understood it, Israel in effect gave up to 30% of what the Lord blessed them with. And that's quite a, quite a large number. Now, I'm, not, I'm not making any statements here, so please don't take that out of context. All I'm saying is I wanted to point out in verses 4 to 7 how willing they were to give. That the, the artisans actually had to come to Moses and say, Moses, we have to stop. You have to stop telling these people to give. We actually don't need any more things. Which is an absolute blessing. So may the Lord 
work in our hearts of that concept as well to, to glorify His name and for the furtherance of the gospel. You know, there's Bibles that need to be translated. There are missionaries all over the world. There's churches being planted. Whatever the case may be, it is important that we all band together for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, verses 8 to 38. I, have, I haven't actually done anything on these texts because what it's actually only doing is it's summarizing the previous verses on what happened. So what I'm going to do, just to be faithful to the scripture, is to read it, to be faithful to the Lord, just to read through it. So we're going to read verses 8 to 38 together, and then I'll draw to a close. So Exodus 36, 8, Then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle made ten curtains woven of fine linen, and of blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim. They made them. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain 4 cubits. The curtains were all the same size. And he coupled five curtains to one another. So every time you see he here, he is talking about Bezalel. Bezalel is the one who was given, the, he was the overseer, the foreman of this whole project. Uh, he, he coupled five curtains, verse 10, to one another, and other five curtains he coupled to one another. 11, he made loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the salvage of one set, likewise he did on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops he made on one curtain, and fifty loops he made on the edge of the curtain on the end of the second set. The loops held one curtain to another, and he made fifty clasps of gold. So remember, we're, we're, we're always looking back here. I understand when reading this, we're like, this is absolutely pointless. However, remember the Bible says that all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is breathed out by God. And so we need to understand it's there for a reason. And the reason I believe is that it's looking back at all the commands that were made by God for this. And, it's, and, and, and Moses condensed it nicely for us. So let's go to verse 14. We'll read from there. He made curtains of goat's hair for the tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits. And the width of each curtain, 4 cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and he made fifty loops on the edge of the curtain. That is the utmost set on one, and fifty loops he made on the edge of the curtain of the second set. He also made fifty bronze clasps to couple the tent together that it might be one. Then he made a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering of badger skins above it. So it's also making a testimony and looking to all these items that were required and brought by the Israelites, and now it's just showing us where these items were used. Verse 20, For the tabernacle he made boards of acacia wood, standing upright. The length of each board was ten cubits, and the width of each board a cubit and a half. Each board had two tenons for binding one to another. Thus he made for all the boards of the tabernacle. And he made boards of the tabernacle, twenty boards for the south side, Forty sockets of silver he made to go under the twenty boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the other side of the tabernacle, the north side, he made twenty boards. And then forty sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. Remember, looking back to all the commands commanded by God, for the west side of the tabernacle he made six boards. He also made two boards for the two back boards, or rather back corners of the tabernacle. And they were coupled at the bottom and coupled together at the top of by one ring. Thus he made both of them for the two corners. So there were eight boards and their sockets, sixteen sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. And he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on the one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle. 
Hang in there, almost done. And five bars for the boards of the tabernacle on the far side, westward. And he made the middle bar to pass through the boards from one end to the other. He overlaid the boards with gold, made their rings of gold to be holders for the bars, and overlaid the bars with gold. So you can see there's a lot of those items being used, and the gold was overlaying many, many of these items. He made a veil of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. It was worked with an artistic design for cherubim, or of cherubim. He made for it four pillars of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold with their hooks of gold. And he cast four sockets of silver for them. He also made a screen for the tabernacle door of blue, purple and scarlet thread. And fine woven linen made by a weaver. And its five pillars were their hooks. And he overlaid their capitals and their rings with gold. But the five sockets were bronze. What I want us to see in closing is the following. God equips. Firstly, God equips. He called, as we can see in verses 1 to 3, He put in the artisans the gift of wisdom, the gift of understanding. And when you're called, God prepares the heart of the willing. So we can see there God's sovereignty in God's calling, in God's equipping. But we can also see that that step has to be made by the heart to be willing to carry out and to continue. So, for example, God puts it in our hearts to spread the gospel to someone. Now, I might still want to spread the gospel to that person, but I'll sit in the car and battle with myself whether I'm going to spread the gospel or not spread the gospel. But you have to get out and go and do it, and that's where God prepares the heart of the willing. You have to be willing to go and do it. We can all have that want, but are we willing to go and do it and take it further? And notice in this chapter how God calls them to service, and they obey Right, So God calls them to service, they obey. So if God prepares them, if He makes their hearts willing, He calls them to service, they still have to be obedient to the calling. They could have sat there and said, you know what, I can feel this calling on my heart, but I just don't know what to do. That's not what is happening in this context. The context is telling us God equips, He prepares, and we, He needs and He wants and desires obedience from us. And He freely gives the wisdom, and He freely gives the understanding and knowledge, and thereby... We, we get the discernment. And in the same way that we have the discernment with the Lord, Bezalel was given that, that craftsmanship, that workmanship, so that he could complete the project. So therefore, we all need to be equipped as the body of Christ, as true born-again believers, to preach the gospel and to disciple people. The Great Commission is Matthew 28, verse 19 to 20. We all know this, but may it always and every day take root in our hearts that we need to go. I think many times we ask way too many questions and we sit and we, and we struggle with the Lord and we, we don't know what's going on. The Bible says in Matthew 28, verse 19, the first word is go. Go therefore and make disciples. So just go. And if you step wrong and you're in the Lord, He will direct our paths. He will show us where we are going wrong. So go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them all these things that I have taught you, says the Lord Jesus. And lo, I'll be with you to the very ends of the age. And what we also learned is that giving is not also just of money, but giving is also of time and of our resources. In serving the Lord, it's not a work. Remember, we don't come to um, Calvary, for example, and say, Oh, this Sunday I have to serve because, you know, I want brownie points or whatever the case may be. We serve because we want to. We serve because our hearts are rendered for the gospel. They're rendered for the lost. They know there's... If there's a true born-again believer and he doesn't have the, the want for the lost souls to be saved, we really have to examine ourselves. We have to examine ourselves because people are lost 
and the Lord requires obedience and diligence.